Welcome to Holy Cow, a Cubs podcast. I'm your host, Sean Holland. On today's episode, we have Doug Wilson, who's written a new book about Ernie Banks. Uh, it's a good book. It's pretty, it sounds pretty good. Uh, the book comes out in February, February 15th. And Doug just talks to me a little bit about um, the life of Ernie Banks, and you'll learn a couple facts you might not have known before. So it's pretty interesting. Here is Doug. Uh, welcome to Holy Cow, a Cubs podcast, Doug. Glad to have you on. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So uh, you've written a new book about Ernie Banks, a biography. Uh, it's coming out in February, but I thought I'd just ask you for a little um, rundown about your book. Okay. Well, um, you know, it, it's really the, really the first complete biography of, of Ernie Banks' whole life. And uh, uh, one of the, or really two, two main reasons that I, I wanted to write the book was that I always felt that Ernie's kind of been shortchanged a little bit. Uh, one reason is because his personality was so great and his image that over the years, especially the modern generation of fans, that seems to be all they know about him, uh, which is great, but it tends to overshadow how, how really good of a player he was. A lot of people forget that. And the other thing, too, I think if people take Ernie's image just at face value and that's all they think of him, they really shortchanged uh, Ernie Banks the person because there was a lot more to him than just just the Mr. Cub image. Uh, he was a, a man of, of deeper thoughts and, and a lot more serious uh, things. And, and like I said, that, that short, short changes him if they just look at that one image. Yeah, and um, obviously now we'll, I guess we'll start early on in his life. He's from Dallas, Texas. Eventually made it to the yeah, Kansas City Monarchs yeah. of the Negro League, but yeah. yeah. He, so yeah, just a little bit about his was, early life. Yeah, he, he grew up in Dallas at uh, a time that was uh, really kind of a rough period. Uh, you know, at the time Dallas was uh, completely segregated. He grew up under Jim Crow laws. His family was pretty poor. They had uh, twelve kids, and. Uh, so, you know, Ernie didn't really have a lot growing up, and he's uh, one of up the 12 kids, only three of them, and Ernie was the first who even graduated high school because they all had to pitch in and, and help support the family. And so uh, baseball and Ernie's talent for athletics that he showed at an early age really kind of uh, paved the way, and, and he was smart enough and had enough uh, determination to use that to, to better himself because some of his brothers and, and a lot of other people uh, that he grew up with who were good athletes didn't really have to take, take advantage of the opportunity. Yeah, and so... Then, uh, when he, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say, um, so he eventually makes it to the Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro Leagues and uh, tell me a little bit about his time in um, Kansas City. Well, uh, Ernie kind of lucked out that, uh, you know, he 
did go with the Kansas City Monarchs, which at the time they were kind of like the New York Yankees. You know, they were the the flagship of the Negro Leagues. They had the best tradition, the uh, you know best manager at the time, Buck O'Neill. Uh, of course, Jackie Robinson had played for him. The, the shortstop immediately after him was Gene Baker, who had just been signed into the uh, by the Chicago Cubs system and was going into the minors in the spring of 1950. And so Ernie came in as a teenager, and he took over shorts for Gene Baker. Um, that was 1950. Um, right off the bat, everybody could tell Ernie was going to be a good player. He just had that something about him. Uh, but initially, he was pretty quiet. You know, he kept to himself. Uh, he got along with people, but really didn't talk a whole lot. And I think his time with Buck O'Neill, Buck O'Neill's famous personality and optimism sort of rubbed off a little bit on Ernie, too. And as Ernie uh, got more comfortable with the surroundings, his, his personality started coming out. But he had a good year in 1950, and then he got drafted. So he was in the Army for two years, came back in 1953. And by that time, the Negro Leagues were on the... On the way down, a lot of the, the better players had, had left. Ernie was clearly the best player in the league in uh, 1953. He hit near 400 the whole season. And uh, he had attracted some attention from some major league teams, a lot of whom kind of fumbled the ball and just missed out on an opportunity. But the Cubs sent several scouts to scout him and, and realized how good he was. And uh, so they signed him and uh, he came up to Chicago in, in September of 1953. And yeah, of course. Now, it is funny that you say that about like he's so shy and reserved because obviously Cubs fans know in later years he was not shy and subdued when he was on the Cubs. But yeah. it's funny to see how he started out when he was young and he was was kind of shy and quiet. Yeah, that, that was surprising talking to uh, several guys who grew up with Ernie in Dallas. Uh, you know, they said that everybody liked Ernie. You know, he, he just had that ability to get along with everybody when he was really young. But, uh, you know, they said he, even in high school, you know, he wasn't real outgoing. That, you know, there's no uh, account of him being called Mr. Bulldog from his high school team. Or, you know, he never told his football team to play two football games or anything. Yeah, he, he was just kind of a quiet, easygoing guy. Um, and, and he really found public speaking painful, e- even into his early years in Chicago. Yeah, I talked to several guys who were on the Cubs team in 1953, 54, 55, and they said you almost couldn't get a word out of him. Uh, you know, he, he would answer if you asked him questions, but you know, one or two answers seemed to exhaust his vocabulary. And so that was surprising to see the development of his personality. Uh, you know, once he established himself in the majors, felt comfortable, got a little older, you know, then his personality just exploded. Yeah, and now he gets to the Cubs in 1953, and yeah, like you were saying, you know, everyone's about his personality and team leader stuff, but he was a great, great player in his early years with the Cubs. Yeah, and, and, and he pretty much showed that right off the bat. Uh, you know, he famously, uh, in his first the first batting practice pitch that he ever saw in Wrigley Field, he hit over the wall for a home run. And uh, he came up in September. 
53, and, and uh, after a couple of days, they came in the lineup. He hit over 300, two or three homers the rest of the year. And, and so coming into spring training in 1954, the Cubs had a pretty good idea of what they had on their hands. And it was really unusual back then for a guy to step directly from the Negro Leagues into the majors. Um, you know, you look at Jackie Robinson, uh, Monty Irvin, uh, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, all of them had some stop in the minors. Ernie was one of the few guys that went directly into the majors, and that gives you a little indication of how, how good of a player he was and how much the, they could see and tell how good he was right from the start. But, you know, he had a, a solid rookie year, and then uh, his second season he essentially just uh, revolutionized the game as far as a shortstop. Nobody had ever seen that kind of offensive production out of a shortstop. Yeah, that's what I always tell people. Like, you know, no no offense to Alex Rodriguez or Cal Ripken Jr., but the <laughs> first power-hitting shortstop in baseball history really was Ernie Banks. Yeah, it's surprising that, you know, in 1955, of course, he hit five grand slams that year, which is a record for 30, 40 years. But he hit 44 home runs that year. The National League record for home runs by a shortstop at the time was 23. And so he had that by early July. And that season, Ernie hit more home runs than every other American League, than all eight American League shortstops combined. And he had more home runs or he had one less home run than the other seven National League shortstops. So that's how, uh, you know, he said nobody was close to him. And actually, of the the five highest number uh, season home run totals by a shortstop all belonged to Ernie Banks until the steroid error. So, you know, like I said, he was just that much better than anybody else. And, and that's one thing that modern fans really forget, how, how good he really was at that, because if nobody had ever seen that. And he wasn't a shortstop either. Um, he he didn't, didn't have the range that, say, a, an Aparicio or a Murray Wills or those guys had, but, but he had good, solid hands. And, you know, if he got to the ball, he made the play, and he rarely threw one away. He actually set a record one year for the least number of errors by a shortstop. Yeah, because I was always wondering about that because I always, you know, you hear about his great bat and stuff, but I always wondered about his defense because people never really talk about that. And, of course, eventually he'd move to first base in later years, but. Yeah, his, of course, his bat definitely overshadowed the defense, but like I said, he wasn't bad. He he was, and one of his teammates said that he was a little better than average as a major league shortstop, which, which that's pretty doggone good. You know, because at the time there were only 16 major league teams, so and that was the key position in the infield. But uh, he he won one Gold Glove 1960. Um, but like I said, he had a couple of years where he led the league in fielding percentage, and so he was a solid solid shortstop. But his uh, knees went bad, and that's really what uh, started the decline of his career. You know, for for a six year period. In the late 60s, Ernie hit more home runs than anybody in the majors. He had more home runs than Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Mickey Mantle. You know, the, the shortstop from Chicago had more home runs than anybody. But then in starting in 1961, he started having really bad problems with his knees. And uh, 
they moved him to first base to try to protect his knees from the daily grind of going back and forth, making the plays, getting guys sliding into him and stuff at short. And that did help lengthen his career. So in the middle of this big run, Ernie had two back-to-back MVP seasons. Let me hear a little bit about that. Um, yeah, it was 58-59. Okay. Um, yeah, he was the first National League player ever to win the MVP two times in a row. And it was really rare to, for a guy from the second division to, to win the MVP even the first time. Uh, but he was, uh, you know, he carried the team. Uh, and, uh, you know, he hit, had 45 home runs one of those years. The next highest player on the Cub had 21. And uh, in 59, he had 145 RBIs. The next closest guy had 71. So, you know, with, with no protection in the lineup, he, he just uh, was able to do that. And, and talking to some of the guys on the team, he said, you know, there were games where you knew the other team was going to throw at him, you know, because it was always hit hot. There was no protection in the lineup. And he just kept getting up, you know, Four times one of the seasons, he got up and hit the next pitch out of the park after he got knocked down. And so he really showed a lot of surprise and toughness and courage hanging in there. But, uh, you know, after he won the MVP the first year, the second year, he he did even better. And so, he, and even going back and looking at the statistical, you know, modern things, you know, he had the best uh, war in the league by uh, by quite a bit. And so he certainly earned his MVP awards those years. Yeah. Now, of course, as his career goes on, he, you know, moves to first base, like you said. Uh, begins, you know, still a good hitter, but, like, more of a reserve role as guys like uh, Billy Williams and Ron Santo and stuff start joining the team. But finally, after all these unsuccessful seasons, we get to 1969, and the Cubs are actually pretty good. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about Ernie's yeah, role in the sixty? You know that was yeah. The you know the Cubs really started turning the corner in '67. You know, the Leo DeRocher came in in '66, and '67 was the first year they actually took over first place for a little while, as late as, as July. But uh, and they kept building each year. '69, it just seemed like everything came together for them. They had great pitching, great defense, great hitting. That the whole infield went to the All Star game that year. Uh, of course, they had Fergie Jenkins, Ken Holtzman, Bill Hands won 20 games. So you know, it was pretty good if your third best pitcher wins 20 games for you. But uh, and Ernie was having his best year uh, in a long time, and so everybody. The national media kind of fell in love with him all over again that summer. Yeah, and of course, um, by then his personality was in full bloom, and he was, you know, not the shy kid he had been before. So he really made the most out of the spotlight in '69, right? Yeah, definitely. You know, every reporter from around the country seemed like they wanted, you know, the the. The story that year was Ernie Banks after all the years of the toil and misery finally getting his shot at the postseason. And so, you know, every week a new national magazine or a national syndicated guy would be there. And, of course, Ernie knew what they wanted. You know, they wanted Mr. Cub. And so, you know, he just ladled it on thick all year long, all his uh, cliches and, and the optimism and stuff just nonstop. 
and and he seemed he he loved it. You know, he he just uh, was that was uh, what he enjoyed doing, and uh, you know, all all season long, the Cubs couldn't do anything wrong. You know, and, and until they did there at the end, and and it was kind of a bittersweet uh, heartbreak, but. You know, they also got caught by a steamroll from New York. The Mets just had great pitching, and their role players were playing better than they ever had before. And uh, the Cubs just uh, couldn't seem to seem to be on the right side of destiny. Yeah, and of course, um, uh, Ernie's career pretty much not much time left after '69. Of course, he hit uh, home run number five hundred. I believe just in 1970, wasn't it? The next year? Yeah, yeah, the next year. Ernie had a good year in 69. had 106 RBIs, but starting in 70, his legs really went bad, and, and he, uh, I think he only had about 250 at-bats in 1970. Uh, of course, 71, then he had waited a little too long to retire. It was kind of sad there at the end. Yeah, but of course, I guess... That's usually happens a lot of times in, you know, pro sports. Yeah, it happens guys, to everybody. Yeah. Nobody knows when to quit. Exactly. Um, so now I guess we can go into a little bit like his post-playing career, of course. He really embraces the Mr. Cub role, becomes like the face of the franchise. And it he was really, for, what, 40 years, he was a, like the face of the franchise, wouldn't you say? Yeah, um yeah, the the owner Phil Wrigley had, had always said Ernie's always going to have a place with the team as long as he was alive, and he, he pretty much honored that. Of course, in the early seventies, there were some people who campaigned to get Ernie to be the manager, um, and Ernie was always kind of on the fence. He never really came right out and said he wanted to be a manager, and you know most people felt his personality might not have been best suited. To a manager, but they always had something for him, and um, certainly over the last two or three decades, he was always there, public service uh, uh, representative, representing the team, just being Ernie Banks, being Mr. Cub. Yeah, and you know, I'm going to ask, since you've literally written the book on Ernie, uh, what are some things that people might not know about Ernie Banks that you think that you discovered when you were um, researching well, like I said, I, he, he was a more serious-minded person than just all the cliches and the, you know, predictions of coming in first every year and saying, let's play, too. He really had a social conscience. And, uh, you know, as early as uh, in the late 50s when he started uh, becoming a celebrity, he, he was always around to do things for for kids, especially. He was uh, involved in numerous organizations for keeping kids in school, helping boys clubs, Boy Scout. He never turned down an invitation by anybody to go talk to. You know, if you talk to anybody in that generation who grew up in the Midwest, you know, at least once Ernie Banks spoke at their Little League banquet. You know, he, he was just always around, never turned down an autograph. You know, in 1963, he ran for alderman in his area of Chicago, which is unheard of, you know, an active athlete running for a post like that. And, and by all indications, you know, he was entirely altruistic about it. He, he said he wanted to make the community better, do things for kids. Uh, 
you know, of course, he had no chance in politics against Daly's machine, but, uh, you know, having no chance never stopped him from showing up at Wrigley Field every day anyway. But, you know, he went through that and gave it his best shot. Like I said, he, he uh, really put a lot of time in volunteering and, and just doing things to help people out. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of another athlete like running for a city office while they're playing the sport that they were Yeah, not, not while they're an active, uh, you know, active player. Yeah. That, so that was kind of surprising going back and reviewing all that. Yeah, that is pretty amazing. Um, yeah, and I guess, yeah, that's one of those things that, like, this sounds like a very fascinating book that goes, and I'm sure, you know, most Cubs, I, there's probably a few Cubs fans out there that don't like Ernie Banks. I don't know where they are. I never really talked to any of them, but maybe there are, but a lot of the Cubs fans who like Ernie Banks, this sounds like a fascinating uh, read to see about the real life of Ernie Banks. Yeah, and also you can't talk about Ernie Banks without going through the history of the Cubs. Uh, you had to sort of appreciate where the Cubs had been and where they were going to fully appreciate Ernie's career. And, and as I said, that's kind of interesting, wading back through the whole uh, P.K. Wrigley and the College of Coaches and Leo DeRocher coming in and, and all that stuff is just intertwined. It just makes it interesting looking at his career. Yeah, and just the many, the Cubs, not the best run team back in the days, but, I mean, they did find Ernie Banks, so that's one thing. But other than that, not a well-run organization. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and uh, you know, and, uh, that's one thing that, you know, Ernie was caught up in, that, but he, and he never complained. And, you know, you read the paper every day nowadays, guys are wanting to be traded to a contender, playing out their options, you know, demanding more money. You know, every single year, Ernie went in and signed the contract they offered him. You know, he never said one bad word about the Cubs. And, and talking to some of the players, you know, he said, for the most part, it, it was a real, it wasn't an act. You know, one of the guys said, you know, he was talking to Ernie in the outfield one day in the early 60s. And he couldn't believe it. Ernie actually thought the team should be winning. He couldn't understand why they weren't winning. And he said, you know, Ernie, everybody knows why we can't win. We don't have enough good players. You know, Wrigley won't spend enough money. It takes 25 guys on the roster to win. And we've got some good players, but not enough. And he said, Ernie actually thought that they should be winning. You know, he was had that kind of a, a rosy outlook on life. Yeah, it was like he almost made everyone else, even the people that knew that they weren't going to be good, it, like just being around him, you're like, well, yeah. maybe we can win. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the same way later in his life, too. Yeah, you know, he was human. Um, you know, everybody has bad days. You know, he made a lot of money. He lost a lot of money over the years. You know, he was married four times uh, you know, so like I said, everybody has some bad things in their life, but he made the decision, seems like every day before he walked out of his house, that he was just going to be positive no matter what. You know, you, you really can't find too many instances of Ernie smarting off to somebody or, you know, saying, beat it, kid, when somebody asks for an autograph when he doesn't feel good. You know, that might have happened, but I, I never... Never saw any evidence, but there are just thousands and thousands of people who say, yeah, I met Ernie in an elevator one day. You know, we rode down 10th floor. By the time I got off, I felt like he was the best buddy I had in the world. You know, see him in a restaurant getting some pizza. 
He, he would never walk into a restaurant and just slink into a corner. When he walked into a restaurant, he made sure everybody in the place knew that Ernie Banks was in the house. He'd be calling out to people, hey, how you doing? You know, talking to couples, hey, you two married? And why not? And what are you waiting on? You know, and, and so obviously he enjoyed that. You know, he enjoyed interacting with people, trying to make people happy. Yeah, you almost wonder if he'd run for public office like 20 years later when the Daily Machine was gone. He probably would have won. Yeah, he said, you know, and then that's just a whole trip in Chicago politics. But, yeah, he talked to a lot of people. Unless you were in with the right people, it didn't matter who, how popular you were, you weren't going to get the votes. Yeah, he, but, he, even uh, the great Ernie yeah. Banks couldn't get the votes. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, the book is uh, Let's Play 2, The Life and Times of Bernie Banks, and it comes out in February, is that right? Yeah, it's released February 15th. All right, and I I highly suggest everyone out there that likes this podcast at least give it a look. If you like to read about Cubs history, you should definitely uh, try to get this book and read about Ernie Banks. And um, thank you for coming on, Doug. Okay, well, thanks for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Yep. Well, that's all the time for this episode. Um, If you want to contact the podcast, email holycowpod at gmail. Uh, I'm sth85 on Twitter. You want to follow me? um, Available on iTunes. Holy Cow, a Cubs podcast. Uh, We haven't had many episodes lately, frankly, because Cubs haven't really done anything. But as we get closer to spring training, I'm going to try to ramp up the number of episodes and we'll try and get some good guests on here. And until then, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>